a joy to be together on this Sunday morning church to seek God's word and submit ourselves to it. Here at Disciples Church, we're joyful to take our time to work through God's word, um, to grow, to be encouraged, to be edified, and we pray it's a great blessing for you this morning. Uh, if you grab your Bibles with me and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. Uh, if you didn't bring your Bible with you this morning, we have many on the back shelf there. You just grab one and hopefully uh, continue to grow familiar with God's good word. Today we're in verses 14 through 22. Uh, as we see Jesus begin his ministry, um, and specifically by Luke's account, begin his preaching ministry. Look with me at our first verse as we dive in together. Luke Chapter 4, verses 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Jesus has always been one with the Spirit. He was conceived by flesh, in flesh by the Spirit. He was confirmed by the Spirit at his baptism, successfully led by the Spirit through the 40 days of fasting and Satan's biggest temptations as we studied last week. And so it is no surprise to now read from Luke that Jesus sets out to begin his public ministry, his preaching ministry, by the power of the Spirit. In God's good providence, Luke's report of Jesus' ministry doesn't begin until his arrival to Galilee. Uh, from this point on, from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 9 of Luke's gospel, Luke will focus on Jesus' ministry here. Note that Galilee is in the northern part of Israel and contained approximately 240 small cities and towns within it. As Jesus ministered among these people, Luke testifies that a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And again, for the sake of context, in comparison to the other three Gospels, it's helpful to note that since Jesus' encounter with Satan in the wilderness, he went on to have quite a bit of ministry in Judea, mostly, at times stepping into Galilee. As reported in John's gospel, before getting to this point in his journey where he comes to Galilee. So I say that to help us understand that where Luke's picking up Jesus' ministry, a number of significant things have occurred, as according to the other gospels. So when Luke reports here that a report about him went out all through the surrounding country, that makes sense because, as we've mentioned in previous weeks, Jesus' life has been really under the radar with just a few people knowing about his birth. He had some public interaction in Jerusalem at a few points in the narrative, but has lived in largely great obscurity and recently the testimony of his public confirmation by the father and the spirit after his baptism and then we read about his time in the wilderness as solo there's not people there right so so 
if you just are in Luke, this report about him going throughout the surrounding country, almost it doesn't really like how are people reporting? What do they know? So it's just hopeful to know that even some will say a year's worth of ministry has already occurred. And therefore, the blessing of the different gospel accounts and God's perfect providence to give some different emphasis points on the gospel of Jesus, his life, death and resurrection. This is essentially Luke's way of saying people were buzzing about him as the word spread over the first year or so of Jesus ministry throughout that region. The word's getting around about Jesus teaching about his wondrous works just like the word can get around today among people. And people likely had all kinds of thoughts about what they were hearing from the rumor mill about this Jesus. Some likely thinking of positive things and maybe some negative. But one thing's for sure, the people were beginning to buzz about this Jesus from Nazareth, the things he was saying and doing. Verse 15 Continues, he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. The origin of the Jewish synagogue is not fully clear, as we're not given a lot of didactic or implicit instruction or details in Scripture about it. They started, most historians believe, as a result of Israel's captivity from Babylon because they had no access in that time to the temple to worship on the Sabbath. So the synagogue became a gathering place for the faithful Jews to pray, to fellowship, to hear God's word read, and then taught on, right? You don't have the mass-produced Holy Scriptures yet. So there's limited access to written scrolls of, of the Old Testament text. So the gathering at the synagogues where that would occur. Synagogues also were not always designated buildings as maybe we think of them, but were most simply designated locations where general gatherings would happen for prayer and the reading and teaching of God's word. Synagogue is sometimes translated simply meeting place as these were most simply common places in a town where that town's people would gather. Sometimes this would even be a modified room and a private home that was available for people to gather in that town. Capernaum is uniquely noted to have been one that had a designated building that was used for these communal gatherings and the reading of scripture and prayer, but that was not necessarily common in a lot of these really small towns to be able to have a designated building for these things. So when Luke reports that Jesus, was, that Jesus' teaching was being glorified by all, he's conveying that in general the feedback was positive and the, the word was passed that, that Jesus' teaching was something to hear. It's also more than that, though, because... The quality of the praise is noteworthy here. It was more worshipful than it was passive. The word Luke uses here, glorified, is not just about people buzzing or complimenting Jesus' teaching. It's a word used only really for God, and this is the only time Luke uses the word speaking of Jesus. 
This means their praises about Jesus' teaching was truly intended to be worshipful and not just encouraging. In other words, Jesus, therefore, was making an impact on people, on the culture that was around him. The general testimony was that it was stirring worship of God. This is a profound moment that really somewhat bookends Jesus' ministry as he's glorified for his teaching here in the beginning. And as we'll see in Luke 23, he's glorified by the centurion at at his death. Look with me for a moment as Jesus dies on the cross. Luke 23, 46 through 47. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, in breathed his last. And when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. If you remember, Simeon prophesied that Jesus' coming, back in Luke chapter 2, 32, would bring a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Simeon also said that Jesus would be the cause of many to fall. So it's interesting to see right out the gate in in Luke's gospel account that we're going to see a high contrast this week and next between a positive embrace that those who have heard Jesus' teaching are testifying of in Galilee and then the negative response that we're about to see from those who hear it in Nazareth. As Simeon prophesied, is true. Many would rise and many would fall as a result of Christ. Jesus truly is, therefore, the cornerstone for the elect and the stumbling stone for the reprobate. The most important crossroad that every person, every person must deal with is who is Jesus to your life? Your answer to that question is truly the difference between eternal life and eternal suffering. Cornerstone or stumbling stone. Church, there's nothing small about what God is doing through Christ in these days we're reading about in the early season of his ministry Another fundamental note that Luke seems to have particular emphasis of that's worth saying here is Luke's emphasis on Jesus' teaching and preaching in his gospel account with high mentions or highlights of it in chapter 4 here, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 11, chapter 13, chapter 19, chapter 21, and chapter 23. Luke will also give a particular emphasis on the parables of Jesus that he used in his teaching, especially in chapter 9 through 19. Spend a lot of time looking at Jesus' teaching and preaching in these different ways. This is such a highlight for Luke that he starts his gospel account here uh, with this emphasis on Jesus' teaching. He brings this point of his teaching and preaching much earlier into the scope of what's reported than the others, right? There were, others are reporting 
other things. I think this is revealing Luke's emphasis on the importance of Jesus' preaching ministry. Really never has been a preacher of greater significance than Jesus himself. In light of Luke's high emphasis of Jesus' preaching ministry this morning, take a moment with me to consider how important a role preacher, teacher is to us today in the wake of Jesus' example and his commission to how his church would be taught God's word moving forward. The ministry of preaching is such an important part of the economy of God that he has ordained it ongoingly for us. As we see Jesus embark on his preaching ministry today, it's worth slowing to remember again why it is such an important God-given part of our lives in the church today. One that we are to highly value. One that we are to make a high priority to sit under the faithful preaching of God's word. That it would be a true marker of all of our life. Because of the level of impact on so many lives and generations of people, the discipline of preacher-teacher is not one that we should ever take lightly or to ever be pursued for any kind of personal gain or fame or agenda, as it sadly is for some. There's just too much at stake when men rise up by their own elevation to teach when they've not yet been vetted or confirmed to be called to such a task. James is sharp to say this in James 3.1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James is highlighting those who teach carry a high responsibility due to the influence that they exercise in teaching others. Therefore, those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. If a person takes up the responsibility of teaching, then they're taking on themselves the scrutiny that comes with wielding influence over others with their words. This in no way is to be taken lightly. James makes this point because he's about to talk about the weight and influence of our words and how it is a real struggle for all of us to fight our sin, to speak words that honor God, and to speak truth. As heavy as this and as real as that is for everyone, it's particularly heavy and real for those who wield influence over others with teaching, specifically teaching God's word. Church, this is similar to Jesus' warning in Luke 12, 48. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrust much, they will demand the more. Many often perceive those who teach as having a cool or prestigious role. It's seen as a lofty calling in practice, but what this does is cause many to long to be teachers who shouldn't be. There's a right fear and trembling that's got to come with this unique practice. The responsibility to wield correctly God's word on others is not a light one. There's a discipline of life and study and humility that must come with those who teach. 
If there's not, then arrogance and ego and pride not only lead to demise of the teacher, but often to the hearers. It's easy to sin with our mouths, is it not? Not only by cursing, but simply speaking what's not true, thereby leading others astray, misleading people. Again, this is why James is so strong to say that not many of you should become teachers. It's a high call with far-reaching impact and heavy responsibility. This is why the judgment on those who labor to teach will be greater. Those who are given such a responsibility, much will be required. This is also why Scripture is so clear to say those who shepherd Jesus' people as elders must be able to teach. This means they're called or anointed to rightly divide God's word for others. They're proven ready and they understand the weight and influence of this task. Paul says this to Titus, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. And greatly disturbed at the amount of modern day pastors, teachers who stand in pulpits all around our city and beyond who don't hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. They want to come to God's word looking for new angles and new revelations and new ways to say these things with no real concern for the historic orthodox truths of the faith. They don't encourage others by sound doctrine. They don't refuse, refute those who oppose it. Often they are the ones who need to be refuted, those who need to be rebuked. Church, understand your shepherds must do this according to God's word. It is not an option to do it otherwise. And so I say, can you pray for your shepherds and Bible teachers? I know many of you do and do it faithfully. It is so critical that you hold up this practice in prayer. One of the primary reasons why is so that we who preach would never lax or fall into teaching our ways or ideas, the priorities of man, that we never become guilty of teaching what we think you want to hear, but instead remain faithful to what God has clearly set it to be. Not pursuing trendy approaches to preaching or to pursue additives that might make God's word essentially secondary and something else primary. The ministry of rightly dividing God's word is an essential ministry that must continue if the church is going to continue. See with me the importance of this moment in time as Jesus stands in the synagogue among Jewish rabbis and begins to preach and teach God's word. It will lead to the new covenant of God. It will lead to the launch of the church. 
In the church, Christ ordains that preaching and teaching is the primary way that the saints, his blood-bought people, are taught, are encouraged, are led unto greater Christ-likeness and glorifying God with our days. May the Lord protect and equip our preachers, teachers, and grow new ones for a future generation that the right dividing of God's word would continue until he calls his redeemed people home. As we begin to look to Jesus' preaching ministry, consider his next destination, his journey, Luke 4.16. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Here we're given insight that the Holy Spirit led him to Nazareth, his hometown, the place where his parents raised him. Consider with me the fact that this is a very small town where Jesus spent much of the last 30 years of his life. Not only does it say clearly here where this is where he was brought up, back in Luke chapter 2, 39 through 40, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, it says they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and favor of God was upon him. Nazareth is the place, and consider with me, that these are the people who know Jesus best. He is the son of Mary and Joseph, as we will see them seriously contemplate the end of our time together today in verse 22. In verse 16, it says, As was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. As was his custom. See with me, church, that Jesus is faithful to honor the old covenant commands for the Sabbath, the universal moral law, of God to rest on the seventh day to have a day up a day that focuses on the Lord a prioritization of one's week to make it a weekly priority to gather with the other Jews at the synagogue Jesus was faithful it's important to see that his piety and his faithfulness to these things was later continued by the apostles and should still be continued by the new covenant church today we too are to honor the Lord and be faithful to our practice of the Lord's day, the Sabbath day, our gathering with the saints to worship God, to pray, to serve one another, to hear the Lord's word taught by our shepherds. It's not, is it not the, the poor testimony of a modern day church attender or even of some true Christians to so casually not prioritize the gathering of the saints for corporate worship on Sunday in their weekly lives. May we all commit not just to a season of our lives, but to all of our lives, this weekly priority. To not allow the call of the simple things and the fun things of, of daily life to pull us away from the sweetness and the importance of Sunday worship with the saints.
May we do this all of our lives until literally we are physically unable to gather with the saints on the Lord's day or due to sickness or frailty. May the words, as it was his custom, be true of every one of us, church. May one of the uncompromising parts of our testimony of devotion to God be our priority and commitment to worship with the saints each Sunday. And we do this not because it fills our attendance book with stickers, but because it helps us to treasure Jesus and bring our essential part of the body of Christ that we bring as God has ordained it to be to bear each Sunday as we gather. Look with me further, Luke 4, 17 through 19. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Church, it's helpful to remember, again, the holy canon of Scripture, the Bible that we hold in our hands today, was not yet in print, was not yet even finished being written, as God would ordain it. What they had was a limited supply of individual scrolls. This is a communal possession. There was no mass distribution. So in a small town like Nazareth, likely they didn't have multiple copies. There wasn't Bibles in the back of the church or scrolls in the back of the church where everyone grabbed one on their way in. They had one copy. The copy of Isaiah, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. It says, Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The particular message that Jesus chose to read that day, notice it was his choice from God's word, what he wanted to highlight that day before the people. Luke reports only a summary of the text that Jesus read that day, which is from Isaiah 61, verse 1 and 2. All of the prophecies in the Old Testament that point to the promised Redeemer, of all of them, Isaiah 61 is truly special as it describes the mission of the servant of God to not only bring his people liberty from the wrath through their sin, but to be their Lord and the one who brings justice and righteous rule. Isaiah 42 verse 1 serves as a fitting parallel, which says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Church, take some time with me this morning to consider in greater detail this section of Old Testament scripture from Isaiah that Jesus chose to read in the synagogue that day. 
Luke reports in verse 18 that it begins with these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Church, this couldn't be more true of Jesus. Remember that Jesus didn't gain more of the Spirit at his baptism as many witnesses saw the physical presentation of the landing of the Holy Spirit on Jesus like a dove. The Spirit's landing on Christ was more of a presentation to the watching world that he indeed resides and remains with Christ. God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Spirit have always been one and always will be. So yes, the Spirit is upon Jesus. Always has been, always will be. Continuing, because he has anointed me. The, the title Christ, not a name for Jesus, but a title, derives from the word to anoint. The verb here alludes to Jesus as the anointed one. Anointing historically pointed to two things. Being set apart by the power of the Holy Spirit for a particular or high call and consecrated for a sacred vocation. So kings were anointed, prophets too. This is also God's word for those who are raised to shepherd God's people. Pastors, elders are anointed for the high call that God has put on their life to lead God's blood-bought people. To provide and teach and shepherd and care for them. Specifically, anointing is God's way of showing that he has prepared and qualified a man to preach his word to others. This is the special focus that we see applied to Jesus as well. Anointed to preach God's word. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news. We're cheating, are we not? As we break this passage down in Isaiah, we know this is applied to Jesus. His hearers didn't. They, they're hearing the historic text of Isaiah being read. We'll, we'll get to that when that's made clear in a little bit. But what, what, a, what a joy to look back at it, to know that Jesus is anointed to proclaim good news. And praise God for all those that he truly anoints to preach his holy word. I mean, Christian, don't let that get lost on you. My life, Joshua Kirstein's life, would not be anywhere near where it is without the preachers I've been blessed to sit under. Not even close. The faithful preaching of God's word is truly one of the most impactful and defining things in all of my life. And I pray it is also for you. Next in verse 18, he says, to proclaim good news to the poor. Jesus' teaching in the Beatitudes shows us that the poor are not necessarily those without economic resources, but as those who are poor in spirit, meaning they are brokenhearted. They're lacking spirituality. The, those who are poor spiritually could have been very well wealthy physically. The rich can be very poor spiritually. 
Those whom the Spirit gives spiritual life are awakened to their poverty in spirit and are blessed with the fullness of faith in Jesus. It's important that we see this reference as a soteriological generalization. In other words, it's dealing with salvation. It's related to spiritual poverty mainly and the need for spiritual awakening unto spiritual riches. In this we see that Jesus truly is the consolation of Israel as he was prophesied to be. See him bringing true and lasting comfort to the poor. Not with temporary financial stipends like our liberal government likes to doll out. But with everlasting life like only Jesus Christ gives. Amen? The good news that Jesus is anointed to bring to the poor, the spiritually poor, is news about salvation, not financial relief from physical poverty. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Continuing, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. This is the greatest emancipation proclamation ever given. You might say, wow, that, that's a big statement because the Emancipation Proclamation was a very big moment in time that did really big and important things. Yes, this is substantially greater. Because Jesus comes not only to set prisoners free from their physical chains and abuse, but more importantly, those who are held captive by Satan himself in the chains of their sin. Consider this sobering reality with me. Enslavement is fallen mankind's reality. This is unless by God's grace we are set free from our enslavement to sin and we get to become slaves to Jesus himself. If and when this happens, it is truly the greatest thing that could ever happen to us. Church, we must rightly see that mankind was created to be ruled. Our flesh really doesn't like that. But we are all enslaved. We are all meant to have a head over us, an authority over us. We are either ruled by God or by something that we have put in God's place. We must never forget that we all once were slaves to sin and the devil. Titus 3.3, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Oh, how miserable we were. Maybe popular, maybe rich, maybe really good looking but miserable, lost, enslaved. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. John 8, 44, you are of your father the devil and you will do your father's desires. Speaking of those still enslaved to sin, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9. Jesus is Lord means he is master and you are his slave. Peter later said what true Christians do with the freedom Christ has purchased for them. 1 Peter 2.16 Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. The Greek word that our English translates servants there, the Greek word is doulos, which means slave. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. Understand, there is no greater freedom in this life than to be set free from our shackles to sin and Satan and to get to serve our Lord Jesus Christ all of our days. Take to heart this important, these important words of Jesus in John's gospel account, John 8, 34 through 36, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Praise God for the freedom Christ has come to bring to many of us. It is freedom to the captives that we still testify of today when the gospel is shared with others. May the Lord bring many more out of their slavery to sin so that we can be joyful, free slaves of Jesus. Next it says in verse 18, He has sent me to proclaim recovering of sight to the blind. While Jesus will heal many of their physical blindness, a sweet and powerful testimony of his mighty work, truly amazing miracle to us in everyday work for God, that is not what this is referencing here. The sight Jesus brings to many is far better than eyes to see mountains, to savor a sunset, or to look in the face of a loved one. It is spiritual eyes to see the amazing grace of God in the gospel of Jesus so that one looks to Jesus with saving faith and is saved. This is about those who are spiritually dead in sin and therefore they are spiritually blind and need to be given spiritual eyes to see. John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. He will have the light of life. Christian, you surely know many who are truly spiritually blind. They may be surrounded by the truths of God, well-raised in the church, well-versed of Scripture, 
and yet truly spiritually blind. They think, they speak, they live in the darkness. Oh, how desperate fallen man is for the light of Christ. Jesus is truly able to completely change a man's life by giving him eyes to see and to savor the gospel and believe in Jesus alone. Paul testifies of when Jesus saved and sent him to spread the good news. As we read in Acts 26, 15 through 18, the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have, been, you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is the mighty work of God through the testimony of the gospel of Jesus to save his chosen people. I mean, Paul was an active enemy persecutor of the church, of God's people. The, The kind of guy that you and I, Christian, might look at in our modern setting and say, what a wicked man. What a wicked and atrocious, hateful, hurtful, murderous man. And Christ saved him and transformed him into one of the greatest apostles, pastors, preachers ever. Church, let's not be done praying for those who are most lost among us. From those in your own home or family to the rulers and the slave masters, and the abusers, and the pimps, and on and on. God is able to save and set them free. All they know is darkness. They need the light of Christ. May it be God's good will to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by faith in Jesus. Verse 18, all this builds to the next part, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. This last phrase generally applies to all that we've just covered It applies to the spiritual oppression of those enslaved to sin and the devil, those whom Christ came to save and set free. Peter will refer to these early events of Jesus' ministry unto his doing what he said he came here to do. Consider the words in Acts 10, 36-38. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, 
beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. In the end, Jesus will minister to and meet the greatest needs of the oppressed in all the ways that Israel failed to. Praise God for Christ, our prophet, our priest, and our king. Finally, see the last part of the scripture reading Jesus shared that day to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 19. This is a reference to what is known as the year of Jubilee. In Isaiah 62, where this reading is from in the Old Testament, the year of Jubilee was traditionally a year of release where people's debt was forgiven. People look forward to it with great anticipation. And while that was nice, it paled in comparison to the debt that Christ would pay so that we could be forgiven. I mean, this is entirely a better forgiveness, is it not? I mean, what favor would you choose if given a choice? Have your physical debt forgiven? Maybe even the offer of lots of money in this life? Or to have your spiritual debt forgiven, thereby giving you access to the riches of Christ's kingdom and to a seat at the great feet of our Lord God forever? Church, as deep in poverty as you might be, in the here and now, there is no comparison. None. The Jubilee imagery evokes a view of eschatological redemption instead of temporary social political reform. It is the work that Jesus has come to do. The year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is saying the time is now that the Lord is appointed for great favor. And after reading this passage from Isaiah about these amazing prophetic truths of the work of the Messiah, it says in verse 20 and 21 that Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's slow down and take this portion of the text apart. The tradition of, of old in the synagogue gathering was after the rabbi read from scripture, he sat down and the gathering would then sit on the floor at his feet. This is where the saying comes from sitting at the feet of a great teacher. If someone can bring me a chair and uh, you all could get on the floor, I'd like to adopt this as our new practice where I get to sit. No, you're good. If you know me, I'm far too animated to try to sit and preach at the same time. Isn't that unique though? I mean, just an amazing insight into the ways of old. Once the rabbi sat down, this is where the exposition would begin. The explanation of the text. This is where the sermon would be given. The sermon is the explanation, the interpretation, the application of the word that was read from Scripture. The eyes of the gathering that day were fixed on Jesus, it says. There's a keen readiness to hear 
What would he say following this reading of this historic prophetic passage in Isaiah? What's Jesus' explanation of this passage? How might it apply to our lives today? Verse 21 says, And he began to say to them, That means he began to preach. He said, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, these amazing prophecies of this anointed one of God who will do all these amazing things is about me. I am here to do these amazing things. Let's pray. End of sermon. Consider that with me, church. The implications of all that this meant. He just said nine words. And yet he split their world wide open because of all the ramifications that this meant for them. Church, it's important that we see the grandness of these words in this moment. This, this statement he says here is potent. It, it brings to mind the grandness and the wondrous proclamation of the angel to the shepherds. You know it well. Luke 2.11 For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Today, he's here. The one we've waited for for all time. The Savior's here today. Jesus says, in your hearing, this reading of Isaiah, you bear witness to the fact that these things spoken of long ago are about me. The time is now that these things happen. The year of redemption Isaiah 63.4 is here. The messianic era has begun. The Messiah is present in the synagogue in Nazareth on that day. He is Jesus. God the Son. A son of that very village of Nazareth. Church, this is truly Amazing. Now look at their response in verse 22. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Now this informs us that the crowd who heard Jesus profess these bold things about himself had a first response that was positive, excited, saying they marveled, they spoke well of him. They gave approval, they shared excitement. The fact that Jesus' words are called gracious is really not about how amazing his oral delivery was of them, how great he was to listen to. But it's a reference to the grace that is shown to those who receive what he said. For it is God's grace on them to be recipients of the salvation that he brings. Additionally, the extra descriptive words, words that were coming from his mouth, are present to convey the connection to the words of God. Uh, this is bringing the reader of Luke's account of this to the recent testimony of Jesus' quote of Deuteronomy 8.3 at the temptation before Satan, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The words coming out of Jesus' mouth are the same authority as the words coming out of the mouth of the Lord. 
for he is God. He is, as John refers to him, as the Word. Sadly, their pragmatic minds immediately got in the way of hearing the magnitude of what Jesus just told them. And all they could think about is, is this not Joseph's son? The audience couldn't help but marvel and question about Jesus being the son. From their limited view, it makes sense. I mean, he's just a common man standing before them. Jesus was a boy. They watched him grow up on the very streets they're living on. A resident of Nazareth, that's what they know. I think their inquiry to each other about Jesus being Joseph's son is not to be heard as negative, condemning. Instead, it should be more of just the simple light of surprise, maybe joy that such great things were happening of a local boy. A boy they watched grow up. This, this is one of our own, they probably are thinking. It'd be like 20 years from now, God not only gave saving faith to Paul Bumacod, but that he becomes a, a well-respected pastor, preacher of God's word, pastor of God's church. And we would say, isn't that little Paul? I remember him. I watched him grow up. Wow. And this is a testimony of a lady named Wanda Parker. Wanda is likely now in her 80s. She was trained and sent out by this very church to be a children's director, hired by a little church plant in Irvine, California, called Voyagers Bible Church. Wanda raised in our church, First Baptist Church of Bakersfield, uh, trained, sent Voyagers of the church I grew up in. She was my children's director. She watched quiet, shy, soft-spoken Joshua Kirstein grow in the church. Fast forward 25 years later, she found out that the next preaching pastor in the historic 135-year-old First Baptist Church of Bakersfield, where she was trained and sent out, is that little shy boy that she poured into all those years of children's ministry. She wrote me in tears, praising God for his work and will and his appointment of me in our church. Church, it's a very special part of what we're doing every day. You need not miss this. Every week in this church, we are disciplining, raising, teaching, shaping, discipling the future leaders, missionaries, pastors, servants, wives, parents of Christ's church. It is way more important than we often realize it is. And when they grow up to serve the Lord, I look forward to the day where we too get to be in awe of his good work in them. That's what's happening here. Even in light of Jesus' words, they're still grossly lacking a full and complete view of who's standing before them. You need to understand that. God the Son incarnate, worthy of all praise forever, is the one brought the word that day, the synagogue in Nazareth. Sadly, the audience on that Sabbath day would not leave the gathering full of wonder and praise. They would leave full of bitterness and wrath towards Jesus. But that's the focus of our sermon next week. Today, 
We who are gathered here rise to our feet to thank God for Christ, who from the old prophecy foretold the spirit of the Lord is upon him because he has anointed him to proclaim good news to the poor. He set him to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight of the blind, to set the liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Truly amazing. The preaching ministry of the Lord Jesus has begun. I can't wait to witness more of it with you as we go. Stand with me and let's pray and let's worship him as we prepare to leave. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to, to spend time in your holy word. And what a total blessing it is to our lives to get to spend time in passages like this that so often we, we miss the fullness of all that you're doing in them. And, and, and in the sweet ways that it ministers to our hearts and to our lives, that, that it stirs us and causes us to well up with gratitude and remembrance of what you've done for us, why you are worthy of praise, why you are worthy of our obedience, why it is our joy to be your slave, what, why it is so good for our lives ongoingly until glory to sit under faithful preaching, the high ministry of raising children you entrust to our care whether by our own blood family, by adoption, by those that are of this church family that we get to minister to and pour into, like Wanda did of me years ago. All these things, as we witness them in this amazing moment in time, you are doing so many of these wonderful things in us here today. Let the profound application of that not be lost on us that we truly stand to speak of your great name, gospel that sets the captives free unto your eternal glory. Be forever praised by us, your people. In Jesus' name, amen.